Okay, well, uh, a very good evening, uh, good morning, good afternoon, depending on which part of the world you're in, um, to this LSE event. Um, it's entitled, How was Brexit for You? A reflection on what we have learned. We've learned over a number of years now. So uh, it is a timely event. The transition uh, period finally came to an end. Uh, just a few words uh, of introduction really from me. My name is Tony Travers and I'm the Associate Dean in the School of Public Policy. This is an event hosted jointly by the European Institute and the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. Um, for those of you who are on Twitter, use Twitter, the hashtag is hashtag LSE Brexit and the event is being recorded uh, and will, uh, with luck, uh, be turned into a podcast. So uh, that's just so you know. Um, I'm going to introduce our speakers in a moment. Uh, we're going to hear present a presentation from each of them, from the four of them. Then in the time-honoured way, as if we were in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre or the old theatre, there will then be um, questions and answers from the audience. Uh, please feel free to submit any thoughts you have, questions for individual panel members or for them all, or comments in the uh, Q&A function. I will then uh, pass them on to the uh, speakers, uh, all or one of them uh, uh, seems appropriate. So that's really the running order. We'll finish uh, by uh, 6.30 in just under an hour and a half from now. Um, and before that, we're going to hear, as I say, from uh, four speakers, um, from Professor Catherine Barnard, who's Professor of uh, European Union and Labour Law at Trinity College, the University of Cambridge. Baroness Catherine Hoey, who's a non-aligned peer, took her seat in 2020 after 30 uh, years as M Labour MP for Vauxhall. She was a campaigner to leave the EU and uh, co-chaired the Labour Leave campaign. She's also a big supporter of Northern Ireland, uh, her home territory. Uh, Gerard, Dr. Gerard Lyons is an economist and uh, Chief Economic Strategist at Net Wealth Investments, having previously served uh, as Chief Economic Advisor to Boris Johnson when he was Mayor of London. And last but not least, Sir Ivan Rogers, the former UK Permanent Representative to the European Union from 2013 to 2017, uh, who also previously served as the Prime Minister's Advisor on Europe and Global Issues and Head of European at the sorry, and head of the, the European and Global Issues Secretariat. So enough uh, from me, other than a couple of words, just by way of framing uh, the, uh, this evening's event. Um, obviously, until the COVID pandemic came along, Brexit and the referendum that led to it uh, had become an all-consuming part of British public life. Uh, any of you who listen to the radio or the, watch the TV now, see COVID items back to back, will remember how it used to be Brexit items day after day, back to back. And the one has to some extent uh, now supplanted the other. We've seen Brexit after all for four to five years now. But with the end of the transition period, I think it's fair to say Brexit has made something of a comeback. Because as we've reached the end of the uh, transition, the economic and indeed uh, political and diplomatic consequences of that decision will now start to be uh, witnessed in earnest. So expert, you know, impacts on exporting, 
on the city of London, on Northern Ireland. Uh, there are clearly going to be benefits for some from all of this and disbenefits for others. And there will be, as I've just already said, not only economic consequences, but long-term political and diplomatic consequences for the UK and indeed thinking the country's position in the world across a range of issues, not just trade, but also how Britain fits into the international system uh, from here on. I think it's also fair to say that latterly, the question of how the union, particularly Scotland's place in the union, but not only Scotland's place in the union, um, is attended to by UK politicians moving forward has to some extent become, has raised uh, itself as more of an important issue in the last uh, year or two. This has only just begun. Um, it's easy to see the end of the transition period being the end of Brexit. It seems to me as this is the beginning of a very long process, one where the UK economy will restructure to some extent where there will be a new relationship between the United Kingdom and the EU 27. There'll have to be a reconfiguration of the UK's relationship with the world. And in the short term, the need for some temporary intervention to support industries uh, in order, and indeed to sort out issues in Northern Ireland, which I'm sure we'll hear more of in a moment. But purpose of this afternoon, this evening, is for our four speakers who have very different views on this issue, to begin to help us flesh out, uh, see what we really have learned and what we are likely to learn in the months and years ahead. So with that uh, from me, perhaps I can ask Catherine Barnard, Professor Catherine Barnard, if she can um, begin our session this afternoon. Catherine, over to you and thanks. Thank you very much indeed for that kind invitation. Can I just check you can see the slide? We can see it. Perfectly, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great honour and a privilege to be here this evening. Um, I've been asked to look at the question, how was Brexit for you? And given my background, I'm going to look at it through a legal lens. And I am going to make three points. What have we learned? Well, we have learned of our extraordinary ability to get Brexit done. Uh, we have learned a bit about the world of international trade, but not as much as we probably should. And we have learned a bit about governance, um, and that very much is a work in progress. And I'm going to look at those three issues. So first of all, our ability to get Brexit done. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary what has been achieved in the last couple of years. We have negotiated a withdrawal agreement, sort of 1,500 pages of text, including the Northern Ireland Protocol. We have passed some extraordinarily important pieces of legislation, most importantly, the EU Withdrawal Act 2018, amended in 2020. Um, and again, when we successfully concluded the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, um, we in introduced that into our law through the EU Future Relationship Act. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. Underneath there have been literally hundreds of highly complex, very technical statutory instruments too. So it is an enormous credit to the EU's, uh, EU and UK civil service to have actually concluded two major agreements in a very short time frame, but also to have concluded um, and got through Parliament some uh, major pieces of legislation and also some um, uh, pieces of st uh, statutory instruments true. So it is really quite an extraordinary achievement and one um, that we should not underestimate. The toll that it's taken on those involved must be 
really quite significant. So that is the positive news that legally we have indeed got Brexit done and the Prime Minister has delivered on his commitment. And indeed, the future trade deal did start um, on the 1st of January, uh, warts and all, bumps and all, but the fact is it is in place and legally the system is functioning. That is very briefly what the TCA looks like. It's the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, that's the, the basis on which we are now doing business with the EU. And what you will see underpinning the Trade and Cooperation Agreement is it is a free trade agreement. And the significance of this I'm going to discuss in a moment. But also do note something positive too, and that is that there is a significant pillar of the agreement on law enforcement and judicial cooperation in criminal matters. It wasn't expected to be there. It's much more developed than anyone thought. And indeed, this is very good news for law enforcement and data sharing um, in the uh, EU and in the UK, helped significantly by the fact that yesterday the EU um, uh, adopted a data adequacy decision. The EU has won on various things, not least having a common institutional framework, which spans the whole of the agreement, and having a common dispute settlement provision, which also spans the whole agreement. The stability of this agreement is less clear. It is going to be reviewed every five years. Uh, there are also specific issues in respect of the consent in Northern Ireland, which I'm sure um, Baroness Howey will come back to. Um, and also, of course, we've got issues with financial services. There has been no um, recognition of equivalence in financial services. And remember, it's probably going to be 39 decisions that need to be taken in respect of equivalence. Um, and at the moment, the things do not look very promising in that regard. But the fact is, the deal was entered into, the, the, not only the divorce text, but the future trading relationship. And for the sake of complete um, transparency. It's actually not just one deal. There are three deals, two other agreements, one on security procedures and one on um, nuclear energy, which I don't propose to say anything about any further. So in terms of um, performance, absolutely a level performance because the agreements have been done. But what we learned about the world of international trade? Well, this has been a very steep learning curve for absolutely everyone involved. And to put it simply, there are different ways that states work together. At a minimum, it might be through WTO and on states trading on WTO terms. There are 164 states who do that. And to put it very crudely, if the states are trading on WTO terms, that what that means is states can have tariffs on goods moving between those states, but those tariffs must be non-discriminatory. Moving up the diagram, um, if states want to work more closely together, they enter into a free trade agreement, usually premised on no tariffs. And the advantage of a free trade agreement is, of course, there's no tariffs between the states, providing they can prove that those goods uh, are in fact originate in those states and they are also free to do trade agreements with third countries and this is what the UK of course hopes it will have in respect of a trade deal with the United States and other elsewhere in the in the world. Going up the stage you've got a customs union and in a customs union not only are there no tariffs um, on goods moving between members but there is a single policy in respect of the outside world. 
and then going up one stage further, we're no longer just looking at tariffs, but we're also looking at removing non-tariff barriers. And of course, in the EU single market, it wasn't just about goods, tariff barriers, customs duties, non-tariff barriers, about different standards on goods moving between nations, but also the free movement of persons, the free movement of services, and the free movement of capital. Now, traditionally, you see states coming ever closer together in um, this march towards some form of ultimately political union. The, um, what you see in this diagram is, of course, the higher you go up the pyramid, the greater the economic integration, the greater the economic benefits, but also the lesser the national sovereignty, the more that national sovereignty has been curtailed. And of course, that was at the core of the Brexit vote. And what the UK has done is to move down the hierarchy and the UK has moved from being in a position of a single market to being in a position of a free trade agreement. Now, you might think in a free trade agreement, well, that sounds like a good thing. We are able to trade without any tariffs on goods. But herein lies the problem. And if you forgive me for being techie for just a couple of minutes, the problem is this with a free trade agreement. So if you imagine you've got two states, state A and state B. State A uh, might be um, the EU, state B, the UK. Now, they have zero tariffs on goods moving between themselves, and that's very good news. But of course, what the real concern is, is that because it's both state A and state B can enter into their own trade agreements or set their own tariffs on goods coming in from third countries, countries X, Y and Z, the risk is as follows. If the tariffs on a widget entering state A from states X, Y and Z is 15%, but it's only 2% if the tariff comes um, into state B, you can see there's a significant incentive for state X to bring its goods in, pay 2% tariff and pass them off as state B goods and then send them into state A. And to stop that from happening, that's where rules of origin kick in. And these rules of origin are immensely complicated, immensely difficult, and it's that that has caused a lot of problems for businesses at the moment, because businesses have got to prove that their goods are in fact state A or state B goods and not in fact coming from states X, Y, and Z. And if you're thinking about a complicated product like a phone, where you've got components from all over the world, this is really difficult to do. The other point to note is that uh, in a free trade agreement, it's only about tariffs. There is nothing about non-tariff barriers, in fact, about standards. And that's one of the reasons why there are so many checks at the border, because the UK has refused to align with EU rules um, in respect of matters such as SBS sanitary and phytosanitary measures. Again, good reason for doing that in terms of taking back control of sovereignty, but it does lead to friction on the border. If there'd been a customs union, which is what Theresa May had advocated, but um, Boris Johnson had said no to, it would have made things smoother on goods moving from the UK into the um, EU because uh, once they'd paid any tariff, um, uh, then the goods would move freely. 
in if the UK had stayed in the customs union, they would not have had to pay any tariffs on UK goods, and then they would have moved much more freely. But that was a conscious choice that the government made. So I've said, amazing achievement to have got the deals done. Uh, we've learned quite a lot about international trade, but um, uh, not as much as we probably should, which is one of the reasons why there is still a lot of concern about what's going on at the border, because uh, that is the inevitable consequence of um, uh, going into a free trade agreement as opposed to single market. But that was the political choice that was made. My final point is about governance, and this is very much a work in progress. And what I want to say about governance is the following. There is a brand new governance structure to be set up under the TCA. And that brand new governance structure has at the top the Partnership Council, which is going to be presided over by Michael Gove and um, Mr. Sekovic from um, the European Commission. And that is the political level of engagement. They're only due to meet once a year, although you would expect they would meet more regularly than that. Underneath, there are a whole bunch of committees. Just to give you a flavour of the number of committees, there they all are in their um, full glory. And those committees need to be serviced by civil servants, but they also need to be scrutinised by Parliament. And at the moment, there seems to be no mechanism to be set up where Parliament can scrutinise what's going on, not just at the Partnership Council level, but also at the committee level. Note also there's a role for a parliamentary partnership assembly. How's that going to work? Likewise, there's meant to be participation of civil society. How's that going to be? How's that going to work? And is it going to deliver? There are lots of things that need to be sorted out in order to get the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, actually to work on a day-to-day -day basis. If the, all these committees can work together, it may well mean that you can iron out some of the difficulties that are being experienced by businesses at the moment, but not all of them, because the bottom line is we have made the conscious choice to enter a free trade agreement with the benefits and disadvantages I've already outlined. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, Catherine, thank you very, very much for that. Loads of questions from me, but I'm not going to ask them immediately. Um, Perhaps I can go uh, straight on to uh, Catherine, Baroness Catherine Hoey. Hello, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation. Um, it, was, it was interesting to listen to uh, uh, Catherine there and, and remind myself of those three years of absolute agony and tedium that we had in Parliament, specifically trying to get through some of those uh, arrangements that she talked so clearly about. I, I'm going to, I mean, no excuse for really talking um, in my short uh, introduction about Northern Ireland, because for me, Brexit, uh, when I'm living in England, uh, Brexit is fine. We seem to have taken back control. Yes, there are going to be all sorts of teething problems and the whole trade arrangements. Uh, but for Northern Ireland, it is very, very different. And I'm living in Northern Ireland and I'm meeting people all the time who are incredibly unhappy about what has happened. And I just want to remind people that the ballot paper we had in Northern Ireland uh, on the uh, referendum read exactly the same as the ballot paper in uh, the rest of the United Kingdom, which was the United Kingdom. Did you want the United Kingdom to leave the European Union? And the 44% of people who voted in Northern Ireland, yes, a majority voted to remain, but 44% voted to leave, um, have been not listened to because Northern Ireland has not left the European Union in the sense that it is still very much part of uh, the single market 
uh, for goods and part of the customs territory for other matters. Now, that may seem to many people, well, I'm sure we can make that work. And obviously there must have been good reasons why this happened. Uh, we are now in a situation where the reality is that as the, as the uh, Great Britain uh, begins to diverge more and more, as they are likely to, uh, from the EU, because that was part of taking back control and making our own arrangements in globally, uh, then Northern Ireland is going to be left even further uh, diverged and behind. And there's a lot of issues to do with, which I know will be happening too, at the border uh, between Great Britain and mainland EU at Dover and, and so on, those kind of problems at uh, the at border down the Irish Sea. But of course, we have to remember that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. And therefore, we are having a ridiculous situation, which I cannot believe any other country in the world would have done, although I'm sure somebody will give me an example, of where your own country has been divided uh, in order to... Uh, sort something out internationally so that actually uh, the all the all this the the way that trade is being slowed up and we're not getting products into Northern Ireland and Amazon is refusing to deliver certain things to Northern Ireland you know the word BT which is the postcode for Northern Ireland throws up every time you try to order something something different and that is happening in our own country and I, I just feel that that is something so constitutionally improper. Now, it may well be that at some stage there will be a legal challenge of uh, the fact that the Act of Union of 1800 is likely to have been affected because internal trade was meant to be something that was continuous. And also, of course, the Belfast Agreement. And there, there is where the whole thing has happened. I mean, people will say, well, why has Northern Ireland been left out? And of course, the reason being put is that it was impossible to have a customs border uh, on the island of Ireland at the, at the frontier between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and the European Union, very cleverly with the Irish government uh, pushing very hard, used that as a, as, a, as a reason for saying we cannot have a trade border or any arrangement at the border, therefore at the frontier, therefore we'll have to have it down the Irish Sea. Now, the, 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 the fact is that the, the British government, my government, uh, went along with that. I think there were lots of reasons for that. Probably there was a lot of speed at the end. Something needed to be sorted. The prime minister was very, very keen to get Brexit sorted. And this was signed up to without, I believe, the real repercussions of what it meant. Because what it does mean now is, is that the border, uh, the customs border, is there to protect the European Union's single market. And I understand that. And I don't expect the European Union to want to do anything other than um, protect its single market. But it has protected it by, uh, by making the United Kingdom and people in living in the, in the United Kingdom suffer from that. And there are various solutions, you know, which we're, I don't want to go back over all of those, but the, the protocol uh, is something that is not going to be sustainable, either because it will be challenged legally or because it will be actually necessary to change it. Because the day-to-day -day lives of people in Northern Ireland are being affected. And it's affecting, it's not a question of whether you're a nationalist 
or, or, or a unionist now in Northern Ireland. It's a question of whether you can get what you want from Great um, Britain delivered in a, in a normal, proper way, and that we're not seeing some things being stopped from coming in altogether. You know, the ludicrousness that if I was to bring a lorry load of British soil that I dug up myself in, in England and brought it over, I would not be allowed to bring that soil over to my garden centre because British soil is not allowed to come because of the European Union rules. Now, that may sound trivial, but it's not trivial if you're running a garden centre in Northern Ireland or you're trying to get seeds in for your organic Business. So there are all sorts of things. And then one of the, you know, the little things, again, it's a little thing, but just so people understand, uh, the government has made great uh, claim about banning the export of live animals for um, slaughter. That will not apply to Northern Ireland. And as I said to the minister the other week, so is that because you actually feel animals in Northern Ireland? don't deserve the same welfare as animals in the rest of the United Kingdom. So day, every day something new is coming up. Today, Stena Line have, have said that they're only going to allow people who are travelling from Belfast to Liverpool to pay in euros. Um, we, we're not, from next Monday, all meat products are going to have to be, um, have both a, a health certificate and an export certificate. Now, yes, that may be happening at the same time going to the European Union from Great Britain, but we are part of the United Kingdom and people in Northern Ireland are getting very, very angry. And just finally to say on this, the reason people are getting very angry is because the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement has absolutely nothing in it which talks about not having any kind of border. What it did talk about was reducing the, the, the military presence and there was nothing about no about infrastructure. There are cameras there already. Um, Theresa May came out with that ridiculous idea, but we can't have cameras at the border. She'd obviously not realised there were cameras there already. And the problem is that what has happened is that the threat of violence from the Republican elements and indeed with the former T-shirt, Varadka holding up a, a, a picture of a, a, a former customs post having been bombed and implying that if we dare to have something at the frontier, threat of violence, this could all come back. All that has done is to play into the hands of people who are saying now, well, you see what violence gets you, you get what you want. And um, the real worry for us in Northern Ireland now is that the, 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 the the Good Friday Agreement, the whole purpose of it was to bring stability to Northern Ireland by embedding in it the principle of consent. It was an international agreement that the only way could be to constitutional status of Northern Ireland could be changed was by the people of Northern Ireland. The people of Northern Ireland have not been asked if they wanted this protocol. And in four years time, the only way it can be changed is not even by the principle of consent. That has been changed as well. The Good Friday Agreement has been rushed, changed in order to get it so that no longer will it be, it'll be by a majority vote and not by uh, uh, the, um, the normal idea of having to have cross-community support. So I, I may sound quite, quite sort of het up about this, but have, living here and seeing what's going on day to day, I have to say that I really do think people are going to have to wake up and recognise that if Brexit seriously is going to be successful for the whole of the United Kingdom, then the protocol will have to go and we will have to look at another arrangement that is actually in the interest of the whole of the United Kingdom and not putting another foreign country first. Thank you. Catherine, thank you very much indeed. And uh...
also for keeping to time, as I did uh, Catherine Barnard. So thank you both for that. Gerard, Gerard Lyons, you're next. But you're not quite unmuted yet. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't supposed to do any, touch anything. For that. Um, good evening, Tony. It's a great pleasure, a great honour to be here this evening. Uh, just two points first before I get going. First, I'm speaking in a personal capacity. And second, I have a partial association with the LSE in the sense that since 2010, I've been on the advisory board of the Grantham Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment, which is both at the LSE and Imperial. This evening, I'd like to focus on three areas, two lessons from the past and one for the future. First, economic lessons from the past in the campaign. Second, non-economic thoughts in the campaign. And third, where I'll focus the bulk of my attention, lessons for the future. But first, let's begin with the economic lessons. Um, part of the post-referendum narrative was that people voted with their hearts and not with their heads, and that it was all about identity and sovereignty, and that economics wasn't so important. Now, I'm saying this not just because I'm an economist, I'm, I'm talking to the other people, but economics did matter in the referendum, and it clearly does matter if we're to have any other referendum like this in the future. Now, about two days into the referendum campaign, I realized that Leave was deciding not to fight the referendum on the economy. It was quite strange. And I thought this can't be the only economic debate ever, whether or not two sides to the story. So very quickly, I co-founded uh, Economist for Brexit, and we were not part of the Leave campaign, but we fought the campaign on economic grounds. And what was quite interesting was that at the beginning of the campaign, Remain was 21 points ahead on the economy. On the day of the referendum, it was just one point ahead on the economy and on jobs. Now, I'm not putting all that down to economists for Brexit. I think George Osborne played a very big part in that. But people really did engage with the economic debate. After the referendum, it was shown that sovereignty was the most important issue. But within that, there were other key issues, migration or immigration and the economy itself. Now, I was very critical of the use of 350 million pounds on the side of the bus. It was a gross figure. They should have used the net figure. Um, I criticized that. Um, since the event, uh, it's probably closer to the truth than we realize. But what really concerned me, and even though that was being put forward as a fact wrongly by the Leave side. What concerned me more was the forecasts coming out from official independent people, namely the Treasury, which got termed Project Fear. Because it became quite clear in terms of speaking at events across the country that fears associated with the projections made by Project Fear were very real and were having a key impact in terms of how people viewed this. And we really need to get a handle on having clarity and truth and uh, avoiding these type of fear type forecasts in these referendum. Now, anyone who was self-critical and sort of aware should realize the forecasts were ludicrous. The Treasury predicted that just to vote to leave would result in 500,000 job losses within a year, 800,000 job losses within two years. The reality was actually the complete reverse. The UK saw record employment growth. Also, the forecasts were delivered as if though they were fact. And it's subsequently been shown that around 28% of people took these forecasts into account in some way, shape or form. But in terms of the economics, I think the key lesson really was that 
Despite what's often been said, economics did play an important role in the referendum campaign. I would likely play an important role in future referendum campaigns, uh, even within the union here in the UK. The second point I would make is my le lesson, shall we say, from the non-economic side. What was encouraging was how much of a democratic exercise this was, how people really did engage, and that people weren't driven by party politics. In fact, I remember speaking at a previous LSE event, being quite surprised that many of the students were not aware that the Labour Party in its history had been very anti the EU, or as it was then called, the European Economic Community. And indeed, if people want to, in my view, get the best speech made ever on the EU, reads Hugh Todd, Naylor Gateskill, the leader of the Labour Party, speech to the Labour Party conference in October 62. Very insightful. Then, of course, in the mid-70s, we had Tony Benn, Peter Shaw, Brian Gould from the Labour side, serious politicians, making the economic and political case not to join. Of course, there have been many good people in recent years making good arguments on both sides, it has to be said. But the challenge was after the referendum, because referendums don't have manifestos, unlike general elections. And that problem was compounded by the fact that Prime Minister May and Chancellor Hammond were effectively Remain supporters. Now, clearly, there were many different varying versions of leave. And indeed, some people exaggerated the claims. Some people were quite sensible. But there was an acknowledgement in the referendum campaign that voting to leave meant leaving the single market and leaving the customs union, leaving the single market so we could then control our domestic economic affairs, leaving the customs union so we could cut trade deals with countries across the road, across the world. So the fact that after the referendum, the terms hard and soft Brexit entered the political lexicon was indicative of how there was not complete acceptance post the referendum of the actual result. And I think that caused problems. Indeed, in the last few months in the States, we've seen the challenge where if the loser does not accept the democratic result, then it doesn't allow the public discourse to move on. Here, it was more worrying because it led to the UK being in a weakened position in its negotiation with the EU. We ended up, because of this, triggering Article 50 before we really were sure what we wanted. And it resulted in the withdrawal agreement that was signed not being as good as it should have been. And perhaps as Professor Barnard has pointed out with all those different working groups, possibly tying our hands too much in the future in different areas. But let's move on to the future, the third area. And this is where I'd like to focus my attention. The world economy is changing in significant ways, and there is no doubt in my mind that Brexit will strengthen Britain's position the further ahead one looks. Clearly, one cannot leave something that one has been in for over 40 years easily. Parts of our economy, some sectors are heavily intertwined with the EU. That's a challenge. But both the UK and the rest of the EU need to reposition themselves in the changing and growing global economy. Now, the EU does matter to the UK. In fact, to make a success, we need to get three things right. We need to get our domestic agenda right, our future relationship with the EU right, and we need to position ourselves in that growing global economy. Now, domestically, there are many things we should have done when we were in the EU, but we didn't do. Investing more, infrastructure spending, 
greater innovation. Now we've left, we have to address those and we can't blame any failure to do them on Brussels. It's down to us. Addressing the domestic agenda is something we should have done before, but we clearly have to do it now. Our relationship with the EU is important, but let's actually be frank about this. While the EU is an important trading market for us, its share has continued to decline. The EU, as part of the global economy, has also continued to shrink important, but it's the other area, the rest of the world, that increasingly is where we need to focus our attention. We should also bear in mind that the single market didn't work fully in services. And the UK, like the US, are the two dominant global service economies across the globe. Now, COVID will naturally change things. I tend to think it will be the three Gs, grassroots, green, and geopolitics. But it's the trends that were evident before COVID that are very important as we position ourselves for the future. My projections suggest that the UK will be the biggest economy in Western Europe in 25 years. But that requires a number of domestic factors to be right. In terms of financial services, I've no doubt that the UK will remain the dominant financial centre of Europe and indeed one of the world's two major financial centres. There's been a lot of headlines in recent weeks about the London losing out. These need to be kept in perspective. What determines the success of a financial centre are three things. It's inherent characteristics, the regulatory environment, and where clients want to do business. These are all positive for London. Our inherent characteristics, if you're cautious about Brexit, you would say they're Brexit-proof. Rule of law in particular, the time zone, and the basically skills, knowledge, and experience based here. I'm being positive about Brexit, will say that these have been enhanced by a decision to leave. What's interesting though, is really where the regulatory focus is. Now the EU is effectively trying to create a walled garden. It's making regulations to move EU business back into the EU. If that's what they want to do, then that's what will happen. That will ultimately be doomed to failure. In the 60s, the Euro dollar market grew up in London because the Americans tried to impose regulations that didn't really help the development of the market in the States. Likewise, the Euro-Euro market will likely start to merge in London. But what we saw last week was headlines saying that share trading had moved to Amsterdam. What one needs to bear in mind, I can go into the details in the Q&A, is that what's called systemic internalizers within trading firms are where the bulk of these trades are done. They don't actually go on to these exchanges. But what's moved thanks to them is what was effectively expected. EU trading, which is a subset of international trading, which takes place in London, and it's dwarfed by foreign exchange and bond trading, which takes place in London. But ultimately, what will determine London's success, in addition to its inherent characteristics, the regulatory environment, is where clients want to do business. And that depends on us remaining a competitive financial centre. But likewise, it depends on us remaining a competitive economy as well. Hopefully we can develop this further in the Q&A. But I would argue leaving the EU gives us more room for manoeuvre. And to conclude, many people say that Britain will lose its international position. I disagree. There's been many good articles recently by Helen Thompson, for instance, in the New Statesman, 
talking out on strategic issues, whether it's Russia, China, or climate change, the UK is in a strong position. I would argue that despite the challenges of leaving the EU, and there are challenges, and we should accept those, despite the dislocation of leaving something we've been in for over 40 years, there are many reasons to actually expect it to be right, provided we focus on the domestic economy, our relationships with the rest of the world, and our future position with the EU as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Gerard. Um, and uh, as I will say, last but not least, Ivan, Sir Ivan Rogers. Thanks very much, Tony. Um, it's a great honor to, to be with you. Let me just pick up a few points uh, that, from what others have said because I want to get straight on to the Q&A. Um, I think going back both to what Gerard and, and uh, Catherine Barnard said, um, in their interventions. We should be clear that this has been and is a hard Brexit. It shouldn't be a surprise Brexit. I personally don't ever think that there was a soft Brexit option, uh, pretty much said so at, at the time on June the 24th, uh, 2016. Because if the fundamentals of this, which I think they were for the bulk of people who campaigned for leave were, um, sovereignty questions, the ending of free movement to people, the desire to avoid rule-taking, particularly in financial services, where I would agree actually with elements of what Gerard said, uh, the removal of the role of the European Court of Justice in British economic and social life, and a desire to run your own trade policy. If those are your desiderata, you are leaving the single market, leaving the customs union. Um, uh, and um, I said that uh, not only internally, but externally in my first intervention after I resigned um, at, I think, a European Affairs Select Committee in early February 2017 and got a fair amount of abuse from all sides of the debate for having said it and some mystification for having said it. But personally, I don't really believe that the soft Brexit options that were advanced in particular, the kind of EEA Efton option, but various other customs union options, and what ultimately became Theresa May's uh, extremely incoherent checkers package were ever runners. So we've ended up with a hard Brexit. We've ended up with a free trade agreement, as Catherine has described it. That should be unsurprising to us. I don't think anything else was consistent with what was really offered to the people during the referendum campaign. Uh, and it's certainly not consistent with anything that Boris Johnson ever said, either as Foreign Secretary or as Prime Minister. So it shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, it's an FTA. The economic component is an FTA. It is also a bog standard FTA. And the thing I find rather you know, puzzling or irritating in the current debate is, is the sort of attempt to represent ourselves as victims of ghastly, punitive, vindictive European behaviour. This is what we wanted. We wanted Canada dry. In the, uh, in the jargon of Brussels. We said no bespokery, nothing unique, nothing specific. I mean, actually the biggest accusation from uh, Johnson, David Frost and others central to this government about their predecessors was that we'd asked for bespoke and unique arrangements. And the essence of the David Frost negotiating strategy over the last nine to 12 months has been to keep our asks minimal, to keep them extremely modest, to make very few economic asks, um, and to focus above all on the retention and preservation of sovereignty and the ability to prosecute regulatory autonomy for the reasons or for, for some of the reasons that Gerard described. Well, that's fine, um, but there are consequences, as Catherine said, to that. And 
when you're hearing the, um, the growing cacophony now, for example, in the creative sectors, creative, uh, creative industry sector about the implications of the absence of a serious mobility chapter, and you are hearing that, you're going to hear more and more of that from more and more sectors, more and more services sectors well beyond the creative industries. You're only not hearing too much of that at the moment because there's not much, too much mobility going on because of COVID. But this stuff will come to the fore over the next nine to 12 months as people realise what they can't do, which they could do inside a single market customs union. Uh, I'm afraid I think the government would be better here by being honest and saying, no, we're not about to renegotiate these terms. Um, uh, we're not about to have a different negotiation in the Joint Partnership Council, which somehow miraculously delivers a closer version of Brexit and solves these problems on services and mobility, because they're not going to. And they're not going to change their red lines on free movement to people. And they're not prepared to shift on things that would solve the problems that you're hearing from creative industries and many others at the moment. I think it's better to be honest about that. I've always said that, it, you know, I think the Brexiteers would have done better and would still do better to be honest about the implications of the shock of leaving the single market to custody. Because as Gerard rightly said, we've been in it for 40 or 50 years. It's unsurprising that it's a shock. It's a substantial change of economic regime. You can make the case, as Gerard does, that that's a bene beneficent change and that over time you will see the dividends from that in 20 or 30 years' time will say, why didn't we do it earlier? That's fine, but in the short term, as Gerard rightly recognised, there are consequences from leaving the single market and customs union. And without going into detail on private discussions I have with people who ask my advice from corporate sectors, people are still suffering from the shock and suffering from believing that somehow the shock will be mitigated and will be changed by negotiations still to come after exit in the Joint Partnership Council. And I don't think it's a kindness to those people to tell them, I mean, you know, my advice to clients and to people I talk to on this is, don't kid yourselves, the government went for the kind of FTA that it has ended up with. It could, in my view, have done marginally better on rules of origin, on mobility issues, on sanitary and phytosanitary protection, on various other issues I could go through where I think the, the government failed to deliver what it might have delivered, even in a relatively skinny FTA. But these are all relatively marginal gains from where, you know, they ended up with an FTA and a bog standard Canadian style FTA with duty free, quota free, but a lot of things missing from it. And they ended up with that because that's what they wanted. And that's what they think is in their national interest. If that's what you want, then you do have to equip your corporate sector. Don't tell your corporate sector it's all teething problems and that these things will go away in the next six to nine months because they're not going away. Um, on the global Britain point, and there's much that we can discuss and we'll pick up in Q&A and just to pick up on one or two things uh, Gerard said. Look, I'm a fervent free trader uh, by background and by origin and uh, you know, a treasury educated free trader. I also worked for the last British Trade Commissioner who concluded a free trade deal. It was a British Tory, Thatcherite Tory called Leon Britton, who was the last person to conclude a multilateral trade round with his American counterpart in days when Europe and the US dominated trade rounds. I'm in favour of multilateral free trade, but he was the last person to do it because there hasn't been a multilateral free trade round concluded in the last 27 years. We've just seen the, the new uh, Director General of the WTA I'm in favour of free trade deals. I would prefer that they were multilateral and plurilateral more than bilateral and regional, frankly. But I also recognise the world as it is. And do I believe that there are fundamental world changing rounds to be concluded at WTO level in multilateral trade? No. 
So there I would align with Brexit uh, supporters in saying that now we're out and we're out of what they regard as the evil empire and we're out of what I regard as a regulatory hegemon and a major regional hegemon, then you have to have a different economic strategy and a different economic regime. That may well mean, you know, doing a US free trade deal. Uh, I've made multiple attempts to do uh, EU US free trade deals and in, fa in favour of it. It may well mean joining the CPTPP. It may well mean trying to do various other bilateral deals. Um, I would probably try and do all of those things if I were in government and in the Department of International Trade. What I wouldn't kid myself is that those in themselves, even if we delivered all of them, and let's be honest, you know, we, I had Brexiteers coming to see me in my office five years ago saying that we were being prevented by the European Union from doing a free trade deal with China. Uh, well, we hear a little bit less of that from the current government now, given you know, Hong Kong and the Uyghurs and everything else. And there seems to be rather less enthusiasm for a China free trade deal. Although note that Switzerland has one and note that the EU has an investment deal that it's in the process of striking with China. I note, too, that on India, there's a lot of enthusiasm. But on India, you know, India has not yet succeeded in doing a free trade deal with any other developed country since 1947, since uh, the foundation of the state. So let's not kid ourselves that India will be an easy partner. My point is, and Gerard knows this very well, is and has said it very well, is services liberalisation, which is a central issue for Britain, and rightly so, because we're highly competitive in multiple services, well beyond the financial services sector. It's difficult to liberalise services across border. He's right that the services single market was very incomplete within the European Union. I used to be one of those people in the European Union arguing precisely that point. But nevertheless, services liberalisation within the European Union got deeper and further than in any free trade agreement outside the European Union. Now, I'm not saying that stuff can't be done over the next 10, 15, 20 years with difficult negotiating partners from Japan to India to Brazil, maybe even to China. But let's not kid ourselves that it's going to be easy. And the question that the British government is going to have to answer is what can we put on the table, which the European Union couldn't, or maybe the Americans couldn't, or other major partners couldn't, which will tempt people to open their markets in ways that we want and that they haven't done for other negotiating partners. And these are questions that I don't frankly see any evidence that this government has got any coherent answers to. I've listened very carefully to what Liz Truss and others have had to say. I've read all the kind of government documents. So far, there's an almost complete absence of a serious trade strategy informed by serious trade policy negotiation uh, skills. Uh, it could come, and there are good people in government like John View who will be working on the, uh, on the Global Britain, and there are opportunities now for the government on COP26 and on chairing the G7. My point is, this is difficult, tortuous stuff, and we shouldn't kid ourselves that over the next decade, Dominic Raab said uh, the other morning on our media, that, you know, give it a decade and, you know, we'd have made massive progress on, the, on these things, and then you could judge you know, that essentially the kind of upsides of what we would have achieved on trade in global Britain would outweigh the downsides. I have to say, I never believed that. I still don't believe it. I think it's going to be a long, hard grind to try and achieve things via trade policy on our own that we didn't achieve when we were in the European Union. And I think we'll find uh, a lot of these deals extremely difficult and tortuous to conclude, particularly on services which matter most to us. 
Final point, if I may, just picking up what Baroness Hoey said on Northern Ireland. Look, this is immensely difficult, and I don't want to bore people with the long history. I've seen a lot of this both from the inside and from the outside. I've commentated on it. I was one of those saying in December 2017 that I was extremely preoccupied by where I thought the government was heading. I never thought that Theresa May would get her version of the backstop through either her own party or the House of Commons. I even told ex-European friends and colleagues that I didn't believe she could deliver any of it. This is a long and tortuous history. I was also obviously engaged rather tangentially on the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, in various incarnations in the past in number 10. Northern Ireland is not a place like any other in the European Union or indeed probably the world. This is a massively difficult political problem. Again, the difficulty I have with what um, uh, the Baroness said um, is... Look, in the end, we chose to go for a version of Brexit, which made this problem more difficult. Um, the Prime Minister uh, went for the version of the protocol that he signed and then got revisions to it under Michael Gove, and they trumpeted those revisions as a glorious triumph as, as recently as December um, uh, and, and represented it to the public and to their own party as a, as a, a, as a hugely successful resolution of the problem. And they did so partly by denying what she is rightly saying they did, which is they put a border and a customs border in the Irish Sea. We all know that's the truth. We all know there are trade barriers within the United Kingdom. What, the, what Baroness Hoey is rightly saying is we as a sovereign state have allowed the erection of substantial barriers, which may get greater as Great Britain diverges from the EU, may get greater in the Irish Sea. I totally agree with her. This is one of the biggest infringements of sovereignty that any government could ever uh, you know, have uh, deliberately decided on. But that is what we've chosen to do. We've allowed the erection and deliberately allowed the erection of a border in the Irish Sea because the alternative for Boris Johnson was in allowing Northern Ireland to dictate a version of Brexit that he didn't want. But he persistently denies and he's denied in the House that he's allowed the erection of a trade barrier. Of a, of a customs barrier in the Irish Sea. And yet on the ground, as we're hearing noisily now from Northern Ireland businesses, that's exactly what's going on because that's what people are experiencing on a daily basis. Now, I personally am a bit more optimistic than she is on that account and, uh, and then I'll shut up. I, uh, I do think after the disaster of the Ursula von der Leyen Article 16 uh, uh, near invocation, there is a recognition in capitals and in Brussels and in Strasbourg of the immense delicacy of this. I think that people like Maros Sefcovic, uh, who will chair the Joint Partnership Committee on the European side, understand the delicacy of it. I think there will be a preparedness to see what can be done to make the protocol work. All I would say to her is, uh, and to you generally, is I, I don't believe that there's an option here which involves uh, walking away from the protocol, because if we walk away from the protocol, then we're walking away from the trade agreement as well, because the whole agreement will collapse. And where I very much agree with Catherine Barnard and, uh, and indeed others on this is I think this is a fragile agreement. Uh, I think the politics remain extremely difficult on both sides. I think we've already seen just how testy and difficult this has been in the first six to eight weeks. We're only in the foothills of how difficult it's going to be between the EU and the UK. This is going to need a lot of tender, loving care to survive as an agreement, as a, a trade and cooperation agreement. And the same applies to the uh, Northern Irish Protocol. OK, thank you, Ivan. And um, 
Now, I've got one or two questions before I turn over to some that have come in in the Q&A. Feel, feel, feel free to add more in the Q&A. Just to you, Catherine. I mean, you, you, you referred at the end to the scale of what's been decided or what, what sort of the, effectively, the amount of new law that has suddenly appeared in British law. And I, I mean, do you think there are going to be, I mean, there's, been, there's very little scrutiny, I mean, virtually none, actually, of, of quite a lot of it. So do we think that as time goes by, Parliament is either going to have, well, you can't retrospectively scrutinise what's already an act of Parliament, but that, in a sense, things are going to appear, not from the body of law brought in from the EU, we all understood that, that was there, but the new legislation that, that, that was passed uh, between Christmas and New Year to embed this uh, deal. Are there things in there you think that Parliament are, the, are going to surprise us when we find out exactly how they work, when the, uh, there is belated scrutiny? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, two things. One, um, if you look specifically at the Act that was um, went through Parliament in a day on the 30th of December, um, there was zero scrutiny of uh, the deal. I was being polite, sorry, yes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry, are you, are you okay? Uh, yes, I was saying I was being polite when I said little. Sorry, I'm just interrupting you. Sorry, keep going. Um, it was zero scrutiny because there was no time for scrutiny. Um, it doesn't do much for democratic accountability. Um, and um, the most extraordinary clause in the, uh, the Act, the EU Future Relationship Act, is um, Section 29, which basically mandates the courts um, to uh, do everything to make sure that the UK is complying with its obligations under the TCA. It is quite extraordinary that Parliament um, waved that through because I cannot imagine anyone in Parliament had read the entire contents of the TCA, um, which they were going to give effect to through this extraordinary and very wide clause. And indeed, some sad academics had spent an awful lot of time between Christmas and New Year trying to read the TCA. It's incredibly difficult read and still had not got um, anywhere near the end of it. So I'd be surprised if MPs had all um, understood the full consequences of the TCA. The fact is we are where we are, um, and it's important that we, as Ivan said, recognise that there are not going to be significant changes to the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, and therefore we have got to work with it as it is and as it reveals itself to us. And it will only reveal itself to us as and when um, people start moving and they realise that, as um, the creative industries have discovered, that being a short-term business visitor does not allow them to earn any money on their short-term business visit um, if they are self-employed. Um, there will be surprises from the EU. Do remember, and it's one of the points that will affect um, Baroness Hoey, is that of course uh, the EU, uh, Northern Ireland will continue to be bound by EU legislation in the field of goods, even though the UK has no say over that legislation. Um, and it's really important that the UK develops some way of having a positive relationship so it can have some input in that regulation because, in, because um, Northern Ireland will be affected by it. And you only need to look at the annex to the withdrawal agreement to see the extent of the legislation by which the Northern Ireland is already bound. It will be bound by revisions to that legislation, any other legislation in the field of operation. What's going on in Northern Ireland is a unique um, endeavour 
um, and one that will require a huge amount of scrutiny, not just by um, Northern Ireland politicians, but also Westminster politicians, because Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom, and yet they have put Northern Ireland into this position. And question for you, and then on to Kate Harry, Catherine Harry, sorry. Um, uh, was the, um, the position of Northern Ireland, is it, I don't want to put you on the spot, Catherine Barnard, but is it the case that, is it, un, is it I mean, unique or very unusual to have part of the territory of a country, a sovereign state, effectively, at least for part of its activities, within the jurisdiction of another lawmaking block? It's not a state, but a block. It's exceptional, it's, it's extraordinary. We know the reasons why. Um, but it's, it's not just a, law, a regulatory function, but it's also the role of the Court of Justice. The Court of Justice will continue to have direct jurisdiction over the issues raised in the Northern Ireland Protocol. And remember, although we say in the shorthand it's goods, it's not just goods. It's also that, the electricity market. And crucially, um, in Article 2 of the Northern Ireland Protocol, there is extensive provision, unclear provision at the moment, on um, the respect of equality legislation and possibly, probably, all of the social legislation as well coming out of the EU. So it's a whole swathe of law which will continue to be directly binding on Northern Ireland. So, Catherine Hoey, Baroness Hoey, you, you, you made clear that you're very uncomfortable with, but if, with this position. What... Would you like the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who's got a big majority in Parliament and can change these things, you know, if the government decides to, to do, to, as it were, return Northern Ireland to the position within the UK that you so desire? You need to I don't seem to imply that if Article 16, which is the part in the protocol, this is the protocol, by the way, it's not exactly a very exciting looking document, but Article 16, is, is in it very clearly that if there are problems, if, very, if, the, if the protocol leads to serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist or to diversion of trade, blah, 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 then unilaterally the United Kingdom or the EU um, can take appropriate safeguard actions and there's a whole range of what can happen. So, you know, they wouldn't have put it in, surely, the European Union wouldn't have agreed to that if they didn't think that there might well be a possibility where it has to be um, invoked. And of course, we saw the EU, as was mentioned by um, someone earlier, come in with that ridiculous, you know, 24 hour doing it without even asking the Irish government or telling anyone. So of course it could be invoked, but I think also it, it, really, really important that, you know, the prime minister, I believe genuinely did not actually, because of the whole way that, we had to get things through very quickly. There was this whole pressure. There was a danger even, and I remember it in Parliament, that people really did think that, you know, we could lose Brexit altogether. And I think that is a, a huge indictment of our democracy, that there were actually members of Parliament who spent their whole time for two years, nearly three years, doing everything possible to stop the wishes of the people of the United Kingdom being carried out. And that was not just members of parliament, but people right throughout the establishment who did everything they could to try and stop it or delay it. And I think because of that, the question of Northern Ireland, because the EU were very clever, the Irish government was very clever. They saw this as the way of, of kind of getting at 
um, you know, out, uh, Great Britain at, 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 at the United Kingdom. But as far as what I think he should be doing now is basically, I don't think Michael Gove has been nearly tough enough on that committee. Uh, I, it had only met once up until last week uh, since, since uh, it, it met in December. And I, I think the reality is we have to say the protocol's not working. And to, to actually nail the myth, no, to nail, no, but it's very important to nail the myth that the border cannot be at the frontier or inside the Republic of Ireland. What's to stop the Republic of Ireland inside their territory deciding what lorries they want to stop? After all, it's their single market. So why does it have to be even at the border? But certainly it should not be down the Irish Sea. It's quite, quite wrong. And is constitutionally, we've got a foreign power making our rules and our laws. We've got a foreign court. We've got a foreign court deciding all sorts of things. That has broken the constitution of the United Kingdom. Very simple. And I think everyone, you know, really has kind of recognised that. It's just that the follow on from that is quite serious and we have to do something about it. Do you think Boris Johnson shows any sign of caring much about this. I mean, it's not occupying any of the media I notice. I mean, obviously you're making the point and uh, it, it is, under, I think, understood. But do you detect any sense that he and uh, that the Prime Minister and Michael Gove are interested in, in following? Well, I think, I think we've seen a shift among Conservative MPs during the last month or so. Definitely, without doubt, many of them were taken in by, uh, particularly the ERG group, I think were taken in by this. I think they've suddenly realized that this is just not, uh, uh, is, is not going to be able to last and are speaking out behind the scenes. And there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I still have confidence that I think the prime minister knows that it's wrong, knows that it is actually very, very dangerous in terms of the breakup of the union. Um, and is, is, is actually allowing the Irish government to take over more and more control over Northern Ireland. Now, if that's what people want, then I think there are some people who want that, even within the British establishment. But if that's what they want, let's be honest and say that. I don't think Boris Johnson wants that. And I don't think he wants to be the prime minister that sees, sees the United Kingdom start to um, drift away. OK, thanks for that. Gerard, one for you briefly. Um, I mean, what, I think what's intriguing to me, and, and Ivan... Uh, sort of touched on this is given what a, a substantial change leaving the customs union single market will be it will require adjustment for the UK economy and I think everybody can agree on that you've made the point yourself but what would you what would you like to see the you know quasi quarting and the government now come up with as a sort of economic policy that helps move the UK economy on? Because I'm surprised myself, if I'm honest, how little we've heard about how the economy needs to be nurtured and moved on. Now we've arrived in this new position that you think is, is good for the economy, but we haven't really got much of a roadmap. Yeah, like so the UK economy, thank you. The UK economy is a bit like a barbell in the gym where you have the weights at two ends. One part of the UK economy, big parts of it, are world-class, cutting-edge, the financial sector, pharmaceutical, universities. After the US, we're second globally. We've got more universities in the top 100 than the rest of Western Europe put together. But unfortunately, at the other end of that barbell, two out of five people work in low-skilled sectors. Now, these issues were there before we left the EU. The EU is not the only driver in terms of our relationship in the future. Our relationship, say that again, our relationship with the EU is not the only driver of what we do in the future. 
But in answer to your question, we do need a pro-growth economic vision. I would call it the three arrows. Um, Japan had three arrows. It doesn't mean we replicate Japan, but it's recognizing that one arrow is monetary and financial stability. That's linked into the city of London. That is more than the city of London. It's also about making sure that the banking sector in the UK services UK companies, something it's not done before properly. Another arrow is fiscal activism linked to the whole debate that's out in the public at the moment. But the third area is the whole supply side. And this is not about so-called race to the bottom, but it's about the ability to deregulate and change. One has to recognize that in some sectors, the auto sector, uh, the financial sector, many rules are made at a global level. But we need to get all those eyes right in terms of your question is all the eyes, investment, innovation, infrastructure, incentives in terms of tax and regulations, and also getting inequality down as a result of that. So it's a very much a pro-growth vision. And I think the important thing, not to take up too much time, but when you step back from the UK-EU debate, and while it's vital that we do have a good relationship with the EU, the world economy is changing in dramatic ways. If we look at the two of the big economic drivers globally, one is the whole fourth industrial revolution, the data digital revolution. There's no doubt that the EU has been a constraint. The UK needs to distance itself and learn from the success of America. In fact, the biggest positive post the referendum was the decision of all the Silicon Valley giants to go ahead with their investments in London. It's helped the financial technology side. It's made King's Cross an area now to rival the city. But the second driver, apart from digital data, is the shift in the balance of global power. And so Ivan touched on joining the TTP or the variation of it. I think that's important and particularly important, not just because of the future growth market there, but because of us as a service sector tying in with what happens in the US as well. But there's lots of things we can do. Some of these, as I said earlier, we should have been doing anyway, but now we need to focus our attention very much on delivering. We need some quick wins, but particularly we need a longer term perspective as well. Okay. And, and lastly, Ivan, before we open it up to Q, I'm going to bring in some Q&A. Uh, do you think that there are clearly going to be impacts, but nobody disagrees, and some of them are already visible, but given the spectacular impact of COVID-19 on the economy and on, frankly, on national politics, do you think that, in a sense, whatever these impacts are, even the Northern Ireland one, the, you know, they're all going to get lost underneath a 10 to 20 year, certainly a 15, 10 to 15 year need to come to terms with the impact of COVID. That whatever Brexit was going to do, we'll never really fully understand because of this spectacular, unexpected, apparently unending uh, pandemic. Well, it's a good question. I, I think that's probably right. I actually think that people don't live the counterfactual anyway, do they? So uh, telling people that they're X percent worse off um, than they might have been otherwise under unchanged conditions, you know, I'm not sure any of this um, would have struck people. I think what will strike people on Brexit is what you're seeing on the creative industries now. And I, all I'm predicting is that there will be more and more of that over the next few months as people experience the realities of post-customs union and post-single market life. 
And I think it's better to be honest with people that there isn't going to be, you're still hearing people fantasizing really, in my view, in various sectors that various negotiations might be underway or will be in the process of being conducted or these things could be repaired by individual negotiations with each of the 27. Well, don't bet your life savings or don't bet your business model on it would be my, you know, in the end, if you have to go through a shock of this sort, you've chosen to go through the shock because that's what the public voted for. I think it's better to face the shock and then put in place the policies domestically which uh, address it. So I think you're right. A lot of this, look, if you're in the Treasury or the Bank of England at the moment, you're focusing overwhelmingly on the need for uh, uh, the fastest and most comprehensive uh, recovery you can get out, out of the kind of COVID crisis. You're not focusing on many of the implications of Brexit. So you're right, it's all second order in comparison. The difficulty is, and this is what's always worried me about the Brexit implications, is you know, to, to Gerard's point about innovation and investment. You know, this is a headwind to investment as well as, uh, as, well as a potential positive in the way that he puts it. So there are long-term implications from exit from single market and customs union. There will be radical reconfiguring of supply chains. Now, I would agree with him. I mean, I, I deliberately described it in the past as a deintegration project. It's not disintegration. It's Catherine's point. We have decided that we don't like the juridical and political implications of deep integration across border. Fine. Well, you're deintegrating to a degree. You are going radically to change supply chains in both goods and services. There are going to be real market access problems for some of our world class companies in the markets in which they've done best in recent years. Those things, it's like a deaccession process. When you accede to the European Union, there's a certain degree of turmoil because all kinds of things in terms of economies of scale uh, change your business when you join the European Union. We're in the process of leaving it. We're seeing the reverse of that impact. The point for government is don't underestimate it. These things have both short-term consequences, which were genuine teething problems as people get used to the idea of trading outside a customs union. Bear in mind, a lot of traders and a lot of companies have never traded and have never exported outside a customs union in the entire life of the people running the company. So it's, there are some genuine teething problems which will be alleviated over time, but there are some longer-term issues about the structure of the economy, which will change as a consequence of the decision to leave. I mean, I think, I think it would be, I think one thing everybody can sort of agree on is the economy is going to change. The question is how does it change and how is that? And how, how is that to facilitate that change and, yeah. and make it less, less difficult for people who've got yeah. to operate in it and are, and are grappling with COVID at the same time as they're grappling with the implications of Brexit. Okay, great. Now, there's a question from John Pete, who's the Economist Brexit editor. editor. Does the panel not think HMG should have done a, an economic impact assessment of the SFC? of the TCA, I should say, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, as it has of the UK, Japan, and other trade deals. Now, if you just aim off for the time scale, I can see that might have been a challenge. Uh, anybody, uh, I mean, Ivan, you actually um, smiled at that point. What, what, what's your view well, on look, this? I mean, clearly they should have done. I'm a, I'm a great believer in you know, doing uh, you know, proper uh, cost-benefit analyses of these things and having a proper impact assessment process. Um, you know, this is a highly political choice not to do it, let's be honest. Uh, so we can go round and round this circle. It's amusing when you watch the Steve Bakers talking about the need for impact assessment across the board when it comes to COVID. It's the last thing he and other members of the ERG wanted when it came to Brexit. I think, you know, in a way, it's a sterile debate. They're not going to do it. The government has consistently resisted doing any impact assessments because there's no way the Treasury 
or the Bank of England or the Office of Budget Responsibility will come out with figures which look any different from the figures that they came up with before. Including, I, 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 Gerard, I have some sympathy with what he said about some of the Osborne stuff immediately before the referendum, and we could discuss that offline. But, you know, if you look at what the OBR said before the, Mar uh, before the March 2020 budget, again, the implications of a relatively skinny FTA uh, uh, deal were very well set out. And they're broadly in line with what the Treasury had said before. And they're broadly in line with what the European Commission said last week. Gerard, any thoughts on this one? I, well, I think there's a few... Um, obviously, it would have been um, a plus. Openness, transparency, more information is always welcome. Um, I reiterate what Ivan said. I, just two points that are worth stressing here. Um, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, so well before the Brexit referendum, the UK's trend rate of growth was being revised down by all forecasters, including official forecasters. Second point is that if one looks back over our long history of membership of the EU, it did not deliver the economic success that some people hoped for. We should not be overstating the benefits of if we had stayed in. And we also should not forget the future direction of travel of the EU. It's a particularly troubled one post-COVID, addressed the post-global financial crisis issues. And one just needs to look at Euroscepticism across Southern Europe to indicate that the underlying foundations of the EU are not so stable. So yes, we could have had an impact assessment, but I think more particularly, we need to start thinking globally here in the UK and how we really do position ourselves, given that more and more of global growth is already coming from the Indo-Pacific region, from India in the West to America in the East. Hence that TPP might be more of a positive than people realize, TPP being the trade deal. Okay. And actually another one from Anthony Smallwood, which was to Catherine on the TCA, arguing, suddenly disappeared, my sight, that it was more than a, um, sorry, more than a free trade agreement in that in many respects, it is in many respects what the EU would call a mixed agreement and covers important non-trade areas. Is, is that something you'd agree with? So it's a free trade agreement in respect of uh, the first pillar on my slide. So uh, it's covering uh, goods, a tiny bit on services, um, energy, transport, fish. I mean, that is a free trade agreement. A lot of it's cut and paste from EU Canada or EU Japan. Where it does go further, and I'm absolutely agree with um, uh, Mr. Smallwood on this, is uh, it does go further in respect of law enforcement and uh, criminal cooperation. As I say, it was a, a, a good surprise to see how extensive those provisions are. There are also provisions about the possible cooperation um, with EU programmes. Um, and I should just say for absolute completeness, uh, if we do decide to cooperate with those EU programmes, there will be subject to limited jurisdiction of the Court of Justice. So actually, it's not quite that the Court of Justice is removed from this area. So, um, yes, the question is right. But the, the core of what we have there is a modern EU free trade agreement, which is what the UK, the, the UK seemed to have wanted from pretty much the beginning. There was a bit of a detour with Theresa May with checkers. And I saw there was another question about... Um, if Theresa May had got checkers through, um, which was essentially um, the UK as a whole staying in the customs union um, uh, until something could be sorted out for Northern Ireland, would that have been um, sustainable? I think the answer to that is no, because um, 
What's interesting to me is that there was an increasing passion um, amongst Brexiteers about doing free trade deals. You didn't hear so much about that in the run up to the referendum. But the moment you start pushing for independence or freedom to do trade deals, you cannot, by definition, be in a customs union because in a customs union, uh, the arrangements with non-members are set by the EU. Um, and so we could not have done a trade deal with the United States. So the moment it became a priority for the UK government to want to do trade deals, that inevitably meant leaving not just a single market, but the customs union as well. So inevitably, we're going down the, the pyramid and we're heading towards a free trade agreement with the, the strengths and weaknesses that come with that. OK, now there's a, a question here from Jacob Krupa, which uh, I don't fully myself understand, but Catherine, it's aimed at you. And uh, there's a general point with it that I, I want to pursue, which is with the EU expected to publish draft data protection law enforcement adequacy decisions tomorrow, there are concerns there'll be an imminent legal challenge based on the UK's controversial surveillance laws. Does this, now my point I think is despite no change to the UK's data protection regime, what do you think, what do you make of that risk and how many other areas are we likely to discover that the EU was fine with the EU when the UK was a member state, but maybe less tolerant towards this in future, where there is, because diver divergence can happen both ways, EU changing its rules and us staying as we are, Britain changing its rules, UK changing its rules and them staying as they are. So what do you make of this question and, and, and how do you respond? Well, it's certainly, um, Mr. Krupp is not the only one to have raised concerns about the severity of our um, uh, data, uh, our surveillance laws and whether they truly are compatible with um, the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Uh, the Charter, of course, has been turned off under the 2018 Act, but it doesn't stop uh, challenges being made, as we've seen in respect of the um, passenger name records um, in respect of uh, transatlantic cooperation. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's a challenge. Um, and yes, absolutely, we are no longer a member state. We are direct competition. And therefore, the moment we stop being a member state, the um, welcoming arm that the EU applies to its own members no longer is extended to the United Kingdom. And they will do what's in their interests and not what's in ours. And therefore, the surprise over the fact that um, we haven't, the EU hasn't rushed to give us um, equivalents on financial services should come as no surprise because we are now a direct competition. They want to have some of the good things that we've had from the City of London. And that's why they're not hurrying to give us equivalents. Now, we're kind of um, moving towards our last five minutes. I mean, there's some question, interesting material in the questions about um, the referendum process in its aftermath. Now, this evening's supposed to be about what we've learned, but actually um, asking, are there lessons for the UK constitution? Should there have been clearer distinction between law and constitutional law? And I know we can't, where use the you know Brexit. Brexit's happened, but I suppose there are questions for the future about how the UK makes major decisions and about whether massive constitutional changes being made in broadly the same way as any law is made in Parliament is something that this tells us we should revisit, or is are we still all comfortable with the idea that this is the, uh, and Catherine Ho, you were a legislator. Um, that in the sense that doing it in this way, which is the normal UK way of doing things, 
So laws are laws are laws. But do you think there is a need to think about the way we make these big constitutional, when we make a big constitutional change, not just Brexit, that we should push it through procedures in Parliament that are slightly different to the, as it were, you know, the normal procedures? With well, I think, I think looking back on the votes that we had to have a referendum on the uh, EU, I mean, there was a huge majority to go for it. I think uh, probably if there was a, a decision or a discussion about having another referendum on anything to do with really anything <laughs> in, in, in the UK at the moment, there would not be a huge majority and there would be a lot more questioning because I think what um, MPs found that the people don't always go along with what uh, they had assumed they would. And so I think there, there will be... Um, it, I think it's going to be quite a long time, I really do, before there is another referendum. Of course, there's the whole Scottish issue and how that's going to be dealt with. But I, I imagine that the Prime Minister will simply say no. It was a, The last one was for a, a generation and, and, and um, we, ha you know, we haven't got that now. So I, I think cons constitutional issues are better dealt with probably in, in, uh, over a longer period of time. But then, of course... There were people arguing to leave the European Union for 40 years, weren't there? And I mean, I certainly first voted against um, the Maastricht Treaty way back in 19, whatever it was. It seems like ancient history now. So I, I, um, I think on the whole, people were. What I would like to see is more of. The, I mean, I quite like the Swiss idea, but then they're a much you know smaller country. I'd like to see local, very local referenda on issues to do with things like parking or um, you know street cleaning things like that I, I really do think there's a much more of a role for people to get involved because they feel very removed from not just their local councils and local councillors but they certainly feel very removed from parliament and never more so than in the last few years. Okay now we've got about three minutes to go and there's a question and I'm sorry uh, so many of the questions are from men, but I'm dealing with the supply here rather than, uh, you know, anyway. Um, Jonathan Little, uh, question um, in, a, in a personal capacity. Earlier this week, Dominic Raab urged people to take a 10-year view on discovering the merits of Brexit. How long does the panel think an appropriate length of reflection before formulating a definitive assessment? So how long do we think it would be reasonable to say you know, we need to have this long before we look back and make an assessment, a fair assessment, on whether this was a good idea or not. Uh, let's go in reverse order uh, from the way of the speaker. So, uh, Ivan Rogers. Well, um, I very much agree with what uh, Catherine Hoey said about um, you know, attitudes to a referendum. If you have uh, a referendum, then you should respect the result. Um, and uh, I think that, I hope that's a, a lesson uh, that is learned. If you were, I mean, whether we should then have different constitutional procedures and a different way of, you know, I don't think it was a, a wildly sensible way in which uh, David Cameron, my then boss, took the decision. But having taken the decision to go for a refer referendum, you have to abide by the result. You can't constantly invite people uh, to reflect until they give you the right answer. I know the Swiss do to some extent on the kind of, you know, she's right that at local level, you do get very um, specific local referenda, which I also find quite appealing. 
Um, they have gone back to the Swiss people repeatedly on the free movement of people question yeah. until they got the right answer. So I do think <laughs> the kind of referendum instrument is, uh, you know, is, is, is problematic. I think we've made this change. I don't think we're going to go back into the European Union. We haven't talked much about the future of the European Union, which I do agree has lots of issues. I don't think it's turning into a federal superstate, but it's a kind of sui generis venture, which I don't think will rejoin for various reasons for a very, very long period. So I think you don't want to be constantly having these sort of fundamental constitutional questions put before the public. I mean, I think all sides of the debate need to accept the resolution. I think in practice they will over the next few years. And then there ought to be a debate. What I object to on the kind of way in which some of the debate has been conducted is this idea that only there's only one true Brexit, and that is the ultra-hard Brexit. I mean, a Swiss version of Brexit is quite a hard, Bre- uh, you know, quite hard non-European Union membership, and yet they're in Schengen, they have free movement of people, uh, they have complete alignment on industrial goods in, in a slightly different way from the way Theresa May was negotiating. They have alignment on sanitary and phytosanitary, and yet I don't find the Swiss public, when I go to Switzerland quite regularly, saying we're a quasi-European Union membership member and we don't have any sovereignty. So I think somehow we have to get to a more mature debate over time about what the trade-offs are essentially between aligning more with the European Union and getting what we regard as the benefits of sovereignty. Sooner or later, it's how do you get to having a more serious debate about what the trade-offs are? Because the trade-offs are not wholly avoidable, I'm afraid. Uh, And I think the big question for our politics is the maturity with which we end up discussing those issues of what do we actually want to do? Where do we want to be in the world? What do we want our international policy on our trade policy to look like? I don't think those are referendum questions, but I do think they require more openness and transparency across our political system. Thank you very much. Uh, Gerard, how long till we judge? Well, if one looks at the current news, one could say there's already some positive signs if we look at the whole vaccine treatment. If one looks at the former Greek finance minister Varoufakis's comments in the New Statesman the other week and in the media here in the UK this week, one would say that it's already highlighted tensions in the EU. But I think naturally, given that we've left, firms are having to adjust their business model, not just because of COVID, but because of the new trading relationship with the EU. For some, that's a positive. For some, that's a big challenge. But I think what's more encouraging is the sort of sea change in thinking that I see, for instance, across the financial sector. And that's probably apparent in other sectors as well. So it's very difficult to quantify what time period. I think the UK economy has probably already done better relative to some people's expectations. In terms of looking ahead, many people would focus, just to take the last half minute, on the domestic debate in terms of the union. A big difference, I would say, is that the UK, London, was ceding powers to Brussels, whereas we're actually ceding power from London to to Cardiff. And also, as we saw in the EU, even when countries like Italy and Greece had problems with the EU, because they were bound by the euro, they thought twice about leaving. Scotland uh, clearly is tied to sterling, and that creates an additional issue. But I think one needs to, as I said at the very beginning, take economics as having an important role in this as well as sovereignty. But in answer to your question, I think we will see pluses and minuses in the near term. But the further ahead one projects, I would like that to be positives. But we need to be doing the right policy or making the right policy decisions 
here at home as well to really realize the benefits of leaving. Okay, thank you. Um, Catherine Hurry. Yes, well, I, I think a lot of people have already decided, even though they voted remain, that they're actually quite relieved now we're out, especially when we've seen how the EU has behaved over the vaccine issue and other issues recently. And I just think that for me, it was never about economics. It was actually about the feeling that we had got our independence back, our genuinely being able to take control of our, our own country and make those kind of decisions. And if we can sort out the Northern Ireland issue, um, then I, I'm, I'm quite optimistic that it won't be very long before people will be almost saying, you know, EU, what, who, were we ever in that awful organisation? Okay, thank you. And uh, Catherine? Um, it doesn't matter what I think. The reality is that in five years' time, there will be a review of the whole TCA arrangement. And therefore, there will have to, that will need, immediately lead to an assessment of the, the pros and the cons of what we've done. And crucially, it seems to me, it will coincide with the um, Westminster election cycle. And so depending on how things go over the next two or three years, um, I think there's every chance that the next election will also be fought on some aspect of Brexit. Mm. As you said right at the beginning, um, this is the beginning of the next stage, not the end of Brexit. And I think we will still be having these discussions at least in five years time. Okay, well, um, we have only just begun. Well, look, uh, thank you all, um, Catherine, Catherine, Ivan, Gerard, for your contributions. Just to summarize, um, I, I personally am fascinated by the Actually, not only in, in the matter of the way Brexit, the, the final endgame of Brexit turned out and Parliament's uh, lack of time to scrutinise it, but something similar has gone on with uh, the way COVID regulations and public health has been mm. not overseen by Parliament. Mm. So there's a, there's a broader issue there, it seems to me, about Parliament's capacity to do its job, um, but, you know, and not so in both these ways. Um, looks to me as if a rethinking of the economy is going to be required in order that the adjustment that's going to occur can be made to work best for as many parts of the country and as many people as possible. There's still a great deal of what you would optimistically call tidying up to be done, not least of which is in the matter of Northern Ireland, which is rather more than tidying up. Uh, there is the future of the union and the question of how that's to be handled. And... Um, I suppose last but not least, the fact that this is, you know, as was said of devolution, probably a process, not an event. And that therefore, um, you know, as with the Swiss, Swiss, Switzerland's relationship with the European Union, it's an endlessly evolving thing. And that doesn't mean it's an endlessly bad thing or a good thing. It's just an endlessly changing thing. So perhaps we can end on that uh, point of agreement. I'd like to thank all my speakers and those behind the scenes, Rosie and others who've organised it this evening. And uh, we all look forward to seeing you at other LSE events and at the festival, indeed, which was advertised at the beginning very soon. So uh, there'll be a, a short period now when the screen will go blank and everything will stop. Good night.